In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. Visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S dot com. And don't go gently, y'all. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. If you hunt enough, you learn the truth. What you seek speaks a language and knows it well. That's why every Primo's call for everything you hunt is made the right way. We sweat every detail so you get more out of every hunt and nothing leaves our hand until we know it'll work in yours because we don't just make the world's best calls we speak the language primos Is this thing on? Hello? Hit it again. I think it's on now. <clears throat> Welcome to Fantastic Fridays with Doc, the episode that focuses on you, the fans of Hiker Trash Radio. Doc and his guest co-host are going to dive into fan-generated questions and content that you've shared with us. So lace up those hiking boots, grab your cold soap jar, and settle into your 20-mile pace as we fire up the podcast from somewhere deep in the backcountry. It's time to embrace the suck. All right. Welcome to another edition of Fantastic Fridays with Doc. Uh, this is our second episode in the series, and I am very excited to welcome to the podcast, welcome back to the podcast, Alice Ford, stunt woman, outdoor adventurer, and now TV personality. How's it going, Alice? Hey, good. So happy to be back here. And hello to everyone that listened to our episode before. Yeah, I'm really excited to be back and to chat a bit more about winter hiking. And yeah, maybe talk a little bit about my new show that people can watch on the PBS app too. Okay, since the last time we talked, what have you been up to? Oh my goodness. Okay, so last time we talked, I was in Utah. And I think I was just leaving, I think, a bunch of the Utah National Parks and then heading back to LA, I had a couple of like travel snafus happen on that trip that we chatted about. Since then, I've actually been to Antarctica and also did about a month of travel in Southern Patagonia 
So I went to Torres del Paine National Park and hiked the W track. And then I did some of the route of the parks, which is basically like a road trip route that connects uh, a bunch of national parks in Chile and Patagonia. So I only visited two other national parks in that top section, but I got to go out with actually rewilding Chile, which is formerly Tompkins Conservation who is one of the organizations that was really fundamental in establishing many of the national parks in Chile. So it's really cool. I got to see a lot of wildlife and a really fun trip. Okay. You've been to Antarctica and you said Southern Patagonia. And if our topic today is winter hiking, you've got some great insight, I believe. Yeah. And I also grew up in the Northeast. We had about 40 acres of land and in the winter would snowshoe and cross-country ski. And I just got back from Colorado skiing um, so I definitely know about layering and being out in the elements in the, in the winter conditions as well. Okay. And tell us about the new TV gig. Yeah. So, um, I'm really excited because just, uh, two weeks ago, uh, my adventure travel show, Alice's Adventures on Earth debuted on PBS at the local station is the KSPS station, which is in the PNW of the United States. But anyone around the world can actually watch it streaming on the PBS app. We have a new episode every week. For the next 10 weeks, there'll be a new episode. And then I'm currently filming season two, which will come out either later this year or early next year as well. And it's just more detailed, longer episodes, similar to what I put out on YouTube, but with a bit more educational components because it is on PBS. So I'm really excited for people to watch it. And I hope they do. So anyone that... Can anyone in the U.S., anyone in the world can just go to the PBS app or ksps.pbs.org, I believe, and watch it. That is exciting. Huge congratulations to you. Thank you. Now, the first episode, season one, episode one, what is the focus? Yeah, season one, episode one is from the West Coast Trail on Vancouver Island in Canada. So episode one and two are actually both from that hike. I did a solo backpacking trip along that trail. And so it's separated into two parts because it's just so beautiful. And there was so much to share from that. So that's going to be the first two episodes. And then in the third episode, we jump into the Cascades and then head on over to the Olympics in Washington. And then we'll be in Canada a little bit more, Utah, California. So a lot of the West Coast. And the season ends over in Smoky Mountain National Park in Tennessee, too. All right. Hey, I invited you to come on and co-host a brand new type of episode here on Hacker Trash Radio. This is Fantastic Friday, and it is driven completely by topics suggested by the fans of Hacker Trash Radio. So uh, I want to big, a, give a big shout out to Sam Shaw, whose Instagram handle is at ShawSam281. Give him a follow. Thank him for the suggestion of talking about winter through hiking. So often we talk about adventures that are happening during the traditional hiking season in the Northern Hemisphere, somewhere from March to, to September. And a lot of times we don't pay a whole lot of attention to what goes on during the winter. We think of that as the off season, but people are getting after it out there in the winter climate, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And I will say I spent three years living in Atlanta, working on some different movies over the last like, five years or so. And I would say people in that area of the country, definitely, I would say more so than anywhere else I've lived for winter, winter hiking, get out on the hiking trails, like sans snowshoes or skis and just try to brave the deep snow, especially in the Smoky Mountains in the winter, there is quite a bit of snow up at the higher elevations in that park. And 
there's a lot of people that I follow on social media that are out there and reading trail reports and all trails and things like that, that are getting out in the winter. And I was just in the Rockies. Things look differently. I think in a lot of places in the country, depending on what gear you need and how extreme the elements actually are. But yeah, I think there's a huge percentage of hikers and backpackers that are out there in the winter braving the elements too. So I thought it might be a good idea to take a look at a documentary that I had seen before that really goes to the extreme, right? It's called Snow to Sand, and it is about a winter through hike of the PCT, starting up at the northern terminus and heading south. And it was attempted by Justin Lichter, who goes by the trail name of Trauma, and Sean Forey, trail name of Pepper. Were you able to watch that? Yeah, I did watch it. And I think we'll talk a bit about it, but I was hoping there was going to be more actual footage from the trail itself. But what a crazy thing to do. (laughs) Honestly, spending four months braving those kinds of conditions, it sounded like they had quite a mild winter, which probably was nice. And they probably lucked out on that. But quite an undertaking. And I'm honestly surprised that there wasn't more maybe like press or media about it. I know it was done all 10 years ago now, I think 2014, 2013. Yes, that's right. 2014. Yeah. So I'm surprised more people haven't done it. And I'm also surprised that we haven't really just heard more about it over the years. Nice that they made it into a documentary. So maybe that's a, that's the hope is that more people will know about it now, but Yeah, I had no idea anyone had done it in the winter. And I'm surprised no one's done it since. But I wonder, yeah, I wonder if other people have attempted it. We just haven't heard about it. Could be, could be. Now, this was done in 2014. Like you said, this is 30 years after another duo attempted it back in 1984. And they disappeared during the the attempt. And they found their bodies um, when the snow melted. And so... Pretty daunting, I would think, to take on a challenge like this where nobody's done it before and the people that have tried it ahead of you have perished. Yeah, think about the Donner Party. That's I think that's where um, Sean Forey now has his like cabin that he lives in. Is that's right. That's right. (laughs) But yeah, really harsh places. And definitely they seemed like they really went ultralight, which surprised me especially on their tent. Like they basically just had a pole shelter and that would certainly not be the kind of tent that I would bring on an expedition like that, especially when you're not going solo, you have two people to share the weight. I would have brought something that would have been a little bit better in the elements. So I'm surprised that held up for them that entire four months that they were on trail. That's right. Now each of them has a bit of hiking experience Justin Lichter, he explained that he has 35,000 trail miles under his, his feet. And he has also served as a as ski patrol yeah. in various areas. And then Sean Forey says that he has 20,000 miles uh, under his feet, going through 26 states and seven countries. And he's also a triple crowner. And so he was looking for what is the next way that I can push the envelope And they had conversations between themselves and they shot it down a little bit at first, but then they decided, let's do it. Let's give it a shot and see what we can do here. Yeah, definitely a huge undertaking. And I'm honestly surprised that they made it considering they had frostbite the first, I don't know, couple weeks on the trail. 
I'm surprised not more things went wrong. But I also think for those of you that have not watched this documentary, it is very much it's not like something you would watch on YouTube. It's not a actual chronicle of the trail. It is very much them talking interview style with other experts talking about the trail. They've done some reenactments of what it would have been like showing them snowshoeing and setting up a tent and skiing. But you really don't see, except for I think three clips in the 45 minute documentary of anything from the actual trail itself. So you really have to imagine what it would have been like and how hard it would have been. And we don't really know because we didn't, we can't see that footage. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know that they didn't really share that much about the trials and tribulations on the trail, which I would have loved to, I think, hear more about. Now, wait a second, Alice. You just burst my bubble. (laughs) I thought that was all footage from the actual attempt. And I was wondering, did they have a third person with them that's like nameless in the documentary taking these videos? It was all reenactments? Yeah, those are reenactments. The only things that were in the documentary that were actually from the trail, there was like one short clip. There are two short clips of heavy fog on the trail which you could tell was from either a 2014 camera or a cell phone from back then. And I think one other clip of the wind blowing or something of that rain on the trail. But yeah, no, the other clips, those were definitely reenactments. Um, They were too pretty. They were from a cameraman, not from a tripod. You could just tell that was definitely something that they went and shot afterwards because they didn't have anything to show in this documentary other than them just talking. So I think that someone probably approached them and said, hey, you guys should really share the experience that you had. And this was the best way that they could figure out how to do it since they didn't actually have any footage from the hike itself. I am so glad that I've got somebody with some TV experience (laughs) co-hosting with me today. So I don't look absolutely ridiculous on this. Thank you so much for catching that for us and pointing that out. Now, I did make contact with Sean this morning. And oh, I told him amazing. We were okay. Today. Yeah. I told him we were recording today and I sent him a, a, a link to see if he could join us, but he couldn't join us today. It was short notice. I apologize for the short notice, but we're definitely going to have him on and possibly Justin to maybe do a, a, a full episode on snow to sand. And I'll, I'll ask them, I'll pin them down and I'll let them know that, Hey, I know <laughs> that that wasn't actual footage. It was a recreation and we'll see what they say. Yeah. Hopefully I didn't just burst their bubble. <laughs> Now, I think the first thing I would say about winter through hiking is that you need to do your research. You can't just go in like you would on a summer day hike. You, You really have to understand the conditions out there. And in fact, I think they shared on the documentary that there was five years of research conducted by the two of them before they made the attempt. Yeah, they really put a lot of time into figuring out how best to do this hike. And I'm sure like a lot of details went into figuring out food drops and things like that. I know that, yeah, there's a lot, like if they were here, I would, there's a lot of things I would love to ask them about like resupplies and even water, because I know they mentioned in the documentary that the snowpack was very low and there were lots of places where they were supposed to be able to get water and they couldn't get water. So how did that look? What happened in those scenarios? Were they, dehydrated for days, not being able to fill up. What did they eat? Also, obviously, they had ultralight packs. It seemed like in the reenactments of the fire scene that they didn't have 
camp stoves, but obviously they must have. Yeah. So there's just a lot of things that I wonder, the logistics, what did they pack? What did they decide not to take? The things of that nature, because yeah, as you said, like winter, you definitely usually need more gear, heavier sleeping bags, a better tent. They didn't even have a tent. They just had a, a cover. <laughs> Yeah. An interesting point about the food situation, because when you typically resupply, you're sending stuff ahead and then you're either going off trail into town to get it, or there are locations really close to trail or on trail. But the thing about winter and snowfall, a lot of those places are inaccessible to typical mail delivery, mail drops, things like that. So how did they resupply? Good point. Yeah. And I know that in the first couple of weeks, they mentioned also that they had stashed somewhere along the trail, the, I can't remember if it was the snowshoes or the skis, but whichever one they were supposed to switch into. And that because of the snowpack, they should have had them like miles sooner. And so they had mentioned that became a really difficult thing of not having the right equipment at the right time, because the weather was a lot later or less, less snow than they should have had. And also four months of rain sounds terrible. Yeah, it does. (laughs) Yeah, it does. And even though they did that much preparation, they were looking at storm patterns and trying to stay ahead of the storm season. They failed to see the signs of a big cold snap and a storm coming in and they had bounced their snowshoes ahead. They said, yeah. And they kind of got them into a situation where the wind chills were really dropping the temperatures. And that's when they actually picked up uh, some frostbite. Yes. Yeah. I also, I would love to ask like what kind of shoes they're wearing. I know like the winter hikes that I do, I have these like Gore-Tex, like they're not real fur, but like they're in, they're lined with some sort of fake fur and they're much warmer than my regular hiking boot. And I would never go out in the snow or like when I hiked Kilimanjaro, those were the boots that I wore as well. So yeah, I wonder if they were wearing like a summer or fall hiking boot or if they changed boots or what did they do in in those scenarios or what were they planning to change and what were they wearing for jackets? Cause they didn't look that bundled up in this few shots of footage that I saw that were from the real trail. Yeah. I would definitely be interested in, in asking them some questions about that kind of stuff. In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort and timeless Western style. A great pair of Western boots will elevate a casual look or add a refined flair that'll draw both eyes and compliments. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. We also offer custom branding and leather stamping if you want to personalize your boots or fine leather goods. As spring makes its way into summer, stay cool in a short sleeve moisture wicking pearl snap or make your own shade with one of their classic straw hats, new in both men's and women's styles. And if you're planning to hit the road, Tecovis's ever-growing lineup of rugged and full-grain leather bags will get you where you're headed in style and are built to last decades. Visit Tecovis.com. That's T-E-C. O-V-A-S dot com. And don't go gently, y'all. We are stoked to partner with Garage Grown Gear on this episode of Hiker Trash Radio. Garage Grown Gear, or GGG for short, 
is your online store for all things ultralight backpacking. Dedicated to supporting the growth of small and cottage brands, they've got everything you need all in one place. From ultralight accessories to dehydrated meals to your big three, Garage Grown Gear has everything you need to lighten your load. Based out of St. Paul, Minnesota, GGG is known for its commitment to providing quality ultralight gear, stellar customer service, and free shipping and returns over $40. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hey there, hikers. Ever conquered a peak only to find your feet a battlefield of blisters and hotspots? It's enough to make you want to pack it in and head home. But what if there was a way to hike harder, longer, and with more comfort? Introducing Creepers Merino Toe Socks. Made with ultra-soft merino wool and seamless construction, these socks are designed to minimize blisters and hot spots, even on the most demanding trails. Imagine this. You're miles into your hike, the sun is shining, and your feet feel light and airy. You're not worried about blisters or hot spots, just the beauty of the wilderness surrounding you. That's the power of Creepers Socks. Don't let blisters hold you back from your next adventure. Get your hands on a pair of Creepers Merino Toe Socks today and experience the difference. Visit the website by following the link in the show notes to get 10% off your order. Make sure to use the discount code HTRADIO to let them know Doc sent you. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears. Multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Six Moon Designs has been innovating ultralight backpacking gear for the past 20 years. With a wide range of products ranging from ultralight shelters to backpacks and accessories like their extensive line of trekking umbrellas, Six Moon Designs is sure to have a great piece of gear for your needs. With the company philosophy being that gear should aid one's experience, not define it, Six Moon Designs thinks the more time people spend outside the natural world, the better off this world will be. And remember, go wild, live young. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This episode is sponsored by Jolly Gear. Are you tired of compromising between the ventilation of a button-down and the full protection of a sun hoodie? With the Triple Crown button-down, you can have the best of both. 
Plus, their fun standout patterns will have you the talk of the trail. Visit them at jollygear.com. Through hiker owned, Jolly Gear, where fun meets functional. Let's talk about some of the dangers out there. If you're not prepared or if you get caught by surprise, two of the big ones are hypothermia and frostbite. The three main signs of hypothermia are intense shivering, slurred speech, and drowsiness and loss of coordination. Yeah, which you don't want any of those hiking. <laughs> no, that, that kind of gets in the way of hiking. So sure does. if you're suffering from any of that, you, you need to really uh, take care of yourself and, and get warm, get warmer as soon as possible. How about frostbite? Frostbite, I think you start with pain in your extremities and then numbness. And I think there's any anyone that's ever gone skiing or out in the winter, I think you've made the joke of, oh, my fingers are cold. I have frostbite. But it's 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 worse than I think what we are all thinking. But yeah, definitely. And I'm sure there's, do you want to share the actual definition? <laughs> I think you have it. Sure. I'll, just, I'll share some symptoms and stages of, of frostbite. Your skin's going to go numb. It's going to change color on you and it's going to look hard or waxy looking and there are three stages of frostbite. There's frost nip, which is a mild form of frostbite. That's the very beginning. You may feel pain and tingling and that frost nip does not cause permanent skin damage. Superficial frostbite is the next stage and that causes slight changes in skin color. Your skin actually may, may begin to feel warm, which is a sign of serious skin involvement. And if you, it says here that if you treat frostbite with rewarming at this stage, the surface of the skin may appear mottled. You may notice stinging, burning, and swelling. And actually, you may even get a fluid-filled blister within 12 to 36 hours after rewarming the skin. And then the worst part, the worst stage is severe frostbite, deep frostbite. And it, this is when it affects all layers of the skin as well as the tissues that lie below. It turns white or blue-gray as you lose all sensation of cold, pain, or discomfort. And then large blisters form 24 to 48 hours after rewarming. And then the tissue turns black and hard as it dies. Yeah. And then I think you have to get those fingers or toes amputated, which would be really terrible. That's right. Otherwise, the rot will continue up, up the extremity. Yeah, you don't want that. No, definitely not. Have you suffered frostbite in any of your winter experiences? No, not to that any of those extent. I would say maybe I've had frost nip, but I've definitely had the like you start warming back up and get the like hot burning tingling in your extremities, but nothing ever too serious. I get cold really easily. So I definitely know about layering and wearing really warm things. Um, and now I have like heated socks. I have a heated vest. I have... Um, you know, I wear pretty much wool base layers on every part of my body. I wear glove liners on, inside my gloves when it's cold. So I, because I am susceptible to the cold and don't want to get frostbite, I'm very overly prepared, I think, when it comes to being out in the winter, when I know I'm not going to be able to just run to my car and turn on the heat. That's right. And it, it frostbite, it hits on your fingers, your toes, your nose, ears, cheeks, and chin. I'm looking at your nose and your cheeks. They look okay. So you've done a good job. Yeah, I try to keep those covered up. <laughs> if anyone wants to see what I look like skiing, you can go to my Instagram right now because I literally can't see like any skin on my entire body. 
<laughs> it could be anybody, right? <laughs> it could be anyone. I could have a stunt You just say it's you. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So they started October 14th of 2014, and they finished on March 1st, 2015. And this was the first winter thru-hike of the PCT. They said they, they knew when they got down off of Forrester, their chances had gone up from what Justin had estimated to be a 17% chance of success at the start to about a, a 95 chance of success. Just had to avoid any kind of twisted ankle or something. Yeah, all that, all the miles to the Eastern Sierras or the Sierra Nevadas, I should say, are crazy in winter. I mean, I've done Mount Whitney like the first week of November and it is no joke. It is extremely cold. The windshield is insane. And even when you are prepared and you have a lot of layers, it's still really cold. And they were doing all these sections in and around there and coming out, you know, on the other side of Sequoia, which I think is potentially where Forrester is. I'm not sure. But yeah, like that area in the winter months is really extreme. So I can see why as soon as they got through that, we're like, okay, now we're in the clear. We have like desert and like stuff that's a bit warmer. It's not going to be so cold except at night. That would have definitely been the most challenging part of that whole expedition, just getting through that section. Okay. So if folks are listening right now and they're just now understanding that there is a whole new season to hike in. What kind of advice should should we give them before they head out for the trails in the winter? Definitely, like you said in the beginning, definitely check the weather. I think even here in the Los Angeles area, one of the mistakes that people make is just not realizing that mountains have like microclimates, that the weather in the city is not going to be the same as the weather on the mountain. And also just not understanding like the snowpack, is there avalanche danger? What kind of equipment do you need? Most of the time, if you're going out in the winter, you need more than just a winter boot. You need a crampon or you need a micro spike. You might need trekking poles with tips on the bottoms, or you might need snowshoes or skis. I've definitely made those mistakes in the past in some of the winter hikes that I've done where I really should have had snowshoes and I tried to just go with micro spikes and yeah, you can do it but it is gonna really push you to your limits if you're walking in deep snowpack. And so preparation is definitely key. And I think that putting your ego to one side is another thing that you really need to do in the winter. There's just way too many people and things that I've read about over the past many years where people decide to go against their best judgment just because they want to do it. I'm free, so I'm going to go and do it even if there's a storm or there's four feet of snow or, you know, if the conditions don't allow it, don't try to tempt nature because you're not going to win. Yeah, I like that. Put your ego to the side. Be willing to turn around if you realize that the conditions are are out of your comfort level. There was an actor last year, right? Julian Sands, who attempted Mount Baldy and disappeared. And they didn't find him till the spring, till the snow melts. And he had done that that particular trip many times. And so even if you're familiar with an area, if the conditions sneak up on you, get too bad, you can be in for some trouble. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, in that situation, we had a huge storm here in Los Angeles which they've come up with all these new names for. But anyways, there was a lot of rain, which means in the mountains, a lot of snow. Nobody should have been going to those mountains for many days after that storm because the avalanche danger 
would have been really high on Mount Baldy. And also the winds get really crazy up there. People die every winter on the that trail, especially if they're trying to do the Devil's Backbone, which is a lot windier. I don't know which section he was attempting. But that's just one of those things where, yes, he said he was experienced and he'd done it many times before, but you should have known better to try to go up there. If he had called the Forest Service or the ranger station, they would have said, please do not hike today. Right. Yeah. And in addition, you need to be wearing some technical clothing, some layers, make sure that you protect from the elements out there. And also the terrain looks different under snow. When there's no snow, there's nice, clearly defined trail. You know exactly where you are. Do you need to have some map and compass skills if you're going to be doing some some snow hiking? Yeah, I think that I think when it comes to navigation, especially in the winter, and even more if you're going either in a small group or by yourself, you have to have multiple navigation tools. You should have a Garmin or a different kind of SOS device. You should have a map downloaded on your phone that you can track via satellite. You should also have a paper map and a compass because in case your technology doesn't work with the cold, which is pretty common because batteries do not like the cold, you need to have another way for you to be able to know where you are. And I think you and I and probably everyone listening all know that the most common rescue of people or people missing on trails is because they got lost. And yeah, as you said, in the winter, especially if not a, if it's not a busy trail, there might not have been anyone hiking to where you're going. So you've got to orient yourself. I did a couple years ago, the tallest mountain in Colorado in the winter, and I was following this guy's snowshoe tracks. He was actually lost. And I didn't know that. And I kept looking at my map and going, this guy's not walking on the trail, like thinking to myself, where is this guy going? So eventually I actually ran into the guy and he was like, oh my gosh, hi, can you help me? I don't know where the trail is. And I was like, yeah, you haven't been on the trail in a long time. I was like, why don't you follow me? And I can show you the way to go because he did not have a map. He didn't have a GPS. He didn't have anything. And if I hadn't come along, I don't know how long he would have been on that mountain, but he probably would have been there overnight. Yeah, and let's talk about rescues because, again, if you're in the Sierras during a summer hike of, say, the John Muir Trail or Pacific Crest Trail, and you get injured and you hit the button on your Garmin, it's typically a a much simpler rescue than if it is during a snow season and there's a a storm going on. When you hit that button, if you quit, like they said in in Snow to Sand, if you quit, you still have to get somewhere to, to get out. You're remote. You're more isolated because of the conditions and the weather. It's not going to be as easy. So be prepared before you get out there. Yeah. And it also might be a long time. I have some friends that were hiking in Utah just a couple of days ago, and they walked a short one and a half mile trail to a frozen waterfall and a bunch of ice fell off and hit a bunch of people in their group. And they had to get a helicopter up there. But I think it took something like six hours. And then the helicopter made it worse because when it came into land, a bunch more ice fell off the waterfall. And anyways, yeah. So you need to always be prepared and also be able to treat anything that might happen to you, like with whatever first aid kit, be prepared for, always be prepared for the worst and hope for the best. That's what I say. Mm-hmm. And it's not a bad idea to, to carry a small mirror with you anytime of the year that you're hiking, just to use as a signaling device, because people can be very small in the huge wilderness when someone's trying to find us. Absolutely. That's such a great piece of advice. 
All right. Any other thoughts about uh, winter hiking? Tell us what you were doing down in Antarctica. Yeah, I was just visiting. <laughs> I've just never visiting. been to Antarctica. Yeah. <laughs> you have relatives down there? I do. They're small, they're black and white, and they waddle. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I didn't know he had nuns in the family. <laughs> yeah, they, they really stick together. They like to live in the same places. Um, <laughs> how, how long were you there? Um, I was there 10 days, but it takes it takes two days to get there and four day, two days to get back. So really, you're on Antarctica for really five days, five, six days. But I've never, I'd never been. It's definitely was a bucket list location for me to see the wildlife. And it's just a really hard to explain landscape. When it's not sunny, which it's not sunny that often, you have this like cloud and fog inversion over the ocean and the icebergs. And so it, it almost looks like you're in a black and white movie a lot of the time when you're looking out to sea because you can only see this small crack of horizon between the fog and the clouds where you might see just like white snow-covered mountains and nothing else. The ocean is the same color as the sky a lot of the time, like just this grayish, grayscale color. So it's just really interesting place. And I think as an explorer, it's a really cool place because it's one of the last places on earth that we've in our recent history had people really pushing the boundaries of exploration and of what people are physically capable of doing. It was only a hundred years ago that Shackleton and Roald Amundsen like made it to the South pole on foot. So really cool to just go and actually see the landscape that they were in because we can watch a million documentaries about a place but until you see it and you realize just you try to walk around in the snow for five minutes and realize oh my god this must have been so difficult a hundred years ago when they had very basic equipment terrible when the british went they wore canvas outfits and there's a reason why the Norwegians got there first because they were wearing animal furs and things that actually keep you warm. But, but yeah, the history is really interesting. And then obviously there's penguins and seals and the icebergs are massive and just a really wild place to be able to visit. Sounds like you were stuck in a 50s documentary with the, uh, <laughs> the black and white issues there. Now, where did you stay when you were down there for those five days? Were you on so, the ice? No, were I was actually on a small ship cruise. We had about 130 passengers that were on our ship. And you would just move every half day to day along the kind of Antarctic Peninsula, which is the long kind of like finger that sticks off of Antarctica that has most of the wildlife. So that's usually where these ships uh, take people. And every day we got off via skiff and got to visit different places. And there's also like snowshoeing and kayaking that you can do throughout the area as well, just depending on the different days. I was supposed to also go camping, but the weather turned for the worse. And so we weren't able to do that. But I was really looking forward to that, to just be able to, they put you in bivy sacks and you sleep out in the open on the, on the snowpack. But the weather is very unpredictable. There's, you can't like check the weather there. It's just like, oh, are we getting sea ice right now? Are we getting a storm? You don't know. So the captain always has to make these decisions of where you're going to go, how long you're going to be able to stay there, whether or not you're going to be able to get off the ship. 
but definitely an experience I'll remember forever. And I'm just started editing the video that will come out from that trip too. So hopefully that'll be out in a week. That's another example of having to pay attention to the weather conditions on not even a, a day by day, but like an hour by hour basis to know what to expect and if you're prepared or not for it. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say in Antarctica, like our first day off the ship, I definitely underestimated how cold it would be. I think also, you know, you have to acclimate to the cold. And for people that don't live where it's cold, it's going to take you a little bit longer. So I think everyone needs to also know that if you're like flying somewhere on vacation to go do a winter hike or something like that, it is going to take your body a bit longer to acclimate to the weather than someone that lives in that climate already. But I definitely did not wear enough layers the first day off the ship. Within 20 minutes, I was like, I'm freezing. (laughs) My toes are cold. My fingers are cold. I need like an extra pair of pants and an extra sweater under this coat. But yeah, I would say normally it's good to just over, over prepare, over pack for layers. Always have extra stuff in your bag as well if you're like hiking or backpacking. Good point. Good point. I want to thank Sam Shaw one more time for the great suggestion. Give us an opportunity to talk about this kind of stuff. And I want to thank Alice Ford for coming back on and co-hosting and and committing to be a regular co-host on Fantastic Fridays. Alice, this has been great. I want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening to our take on winter through hiking. Hope you picked up something useful for it. Always remember the trail is the trail. It doesn't care if you want to go downhill. It doesn't care if it's almost dark and you're looking for a campsite. It doesn't even care if you've been battling snow, wind, and frostbite for the last 1,900 miles like pepper and trauma. The trail is the trail. Embrace the suck. that has the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western i'll be over there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv through the blackwater bayous and in the dark louisiana night floats a duck camp alive with the sounds of swamp pop and the smells of cajun cooking Mississippi Delta in Venice to the Cajun prairies of the Southwest. Me and the Duck Camp Dinners crew will be hunting and eating it all. This is Duck Camp Dinner. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.